This podcast is part of the Everyday Heroes Podcast Network, the network for first responders and those who support them. Welcome to the Hero Academy Podcast, the place where we can celebrate and highlight our frontline heroes. I believe that frontline heroes such as nurses, firemen, EMS, police officers, and military are heroes without capes. I don't care about politics, only positivity and purpose. I only care about those who have chosen to serve society. I believe in collaboration over competition. Here you will learn the secrets and strategies that let ordinary people become extraordinary inside of their passion. Sometimes we'll throw in some simple side hustles that everyday regular people are doing. Things you can do to make extra money, especially if you're starting to think about retirement and what's next. Inside this podcast each week, you will learn from people like you who are working full time, but still found time to create a course, grow a big team or a large audience or a profitable side hustle. The steps they took, their backstories and how they overcame burnout. The perfect blend of mindset and techniques. I'm your host, David Diem. Now let's get your dream lit for your freedom. Hello, my extended family, and thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Hero Academy Podcast, Season 2. If you're a frontline hero, police officer, fire, EMS, military, or medical professional, then you're in the right place, and this show is for you. This week, I'd like to introduce you to our guest, James Gearing, host of Behind the Shield, which is an incredible name, by the way, because it tells me exactly what your show is about. Um, I chose the Hero Academy because I was modeling after uh, Lewis Howes, the School of Greatness. Yeah, so he's uh, I'm a big fan of his. So I chose the Hero Academy because I'm like school, you know, academy. (laughs) Uh, So James, tell us about Uh, Behind the Shield. What is the podcast about? So putting it kind of in a nutshell, the goal is to bring the greatest minds in physical and mental wellness to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world, i.e. pretty much everyone else. Um, the, The kind of origin story of it very, very quickly was as a firefighter, about 10 years into my career, I went to f- uh, six funerals in about two years of friends of mine that died from a host of work-related diseases, whether it was a mental health, whether it was physical health. Um, and that really spurred me to bring the solutions that I'd heard. I mean, I've got a background as an athlete, background in exercise physiology in, in college. Um, but as I'm sure you see in law enforcement, we're very siloed in the first responder professions. And I was seeing the same kind of 1980s style wellness information being churned over and over again so i'm not an expert i'm a perpetual student but i knew there were incredible people out there bringing solutions to the problems i was seeing couldn't find a podcast that was specifically addressing that in in my community um so that was my sign to start it up and that was five years ago that's incredible man i i looked uh i looked up the title and i saw 500 episodes published and i'm like man that's incredible you're you're an og in the game you probably don't consider yourself an og but 
once you once you get over a hundred, like you're a veteran. Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting with the the volume. I mean, certainly, I remember a friend of mine telling me he started a podcast, just kind of chit chatting over baseball, and that was about ten years ago. And I had no idea. You know, podcast sounded like some space age thing that I had, didn't know what it was. Then I started getting into Barbell Shrug, Joe Rogan, Tim Ferriss, all that kind of stuff. But I initially started it once a week. So many people said yes as we started before we started recording that it blew me away how many people wanted to help our communities that I had so many loaded up. I had like two and a half months of worth of interviews. So I ended up doing twice a week to push this information out because I needed to get it to people. And then when COVID first hit, I saw how much god-awful misinformation was being put out and all the focus being on that myopic you know, vaccine, mask, hand sanitizer, toilet paper conversation. And so I wanted to bring the wellness gurus into the conversation as well, talking about fitness, nutrition, mental health, sleep, etc. So I added a third episode per week. You uh, you brought up something. It, it, I, I'm going to come back to the podcast, but you brought up something that I have to touch on. And my girlfriend and I, we say it all the time. Uh, why weren't they taxing fast food places? Because the biggest thing that you can do is keep yourself healthy, Absolutely. Right? Well, I think the question is not even so much taxing. Why were the fast food open, fast food places open, but the gyms all closed down? I mean, if you're standing on a podium preaching about health, we had almost two years now to make a huge dent in the health of this nation, to promote wellness, to really throw funds at local farms to put you know local organic farming back in an affordable range again um, to address the crappy food and sodas that are in our kids schools Um, but we didn't see any of that so yeah I don't think even so much about tax like look what was closed look what was kept open you know that speaks volumes about whether it was really about the nation's health which it absolutely should have been or was it more about these few things rather than the full spectrum of physical and mental health. I uh, I try to not get political, but uh, milk and soda is free for the kids, but water they have to buy. Yeah. Because milk and soda are subsidized by the government and water is and not. And it's, it's sad because people, we have to preface that. I don't want to be political. Well, health isn't political. It's altruistic. No, it it's shouldn't be. coming from a it good place. It's kindness and compassion. So if there's a deviation from that, it becomes, it's not kind anymore. So if you politicized things that are truly going to save lives, whether there's a virus around or not, then shame on you. So uh, back to your career, um, you were a fireman? Yes, sir. 14 years. What state? So I I describe myself as a fire gypsy just because of, you know, family dynamics. I started, I'm from England originally, but I started in training in Orlando. My first job was in the Miami area, a department called Hialeah, which was phenomenal. I mean, they put us through a gauntlet. It was the best way of being led into the fire service because my norm was, you know, like special operations level. It was three months of, you know, just hell. And it was incredible. But then my my son's mother, we're divorced now, but she wanted to move to California. So I got hired in Anaheim, um, which was by far the most incredible department I worked for. I was a tillerman driving the back of the, the truck. Got a lot of fire there as well. Um, and then we had my little boy. She wanted to move back to the East Coast to be with her family. So I ended up in the 
uh, Orlando area, Orange County, for five years. Sadly, uh, we got divorced. Um, I wasn't the only man in the house when I was on shift. <laughs> um, so that didn't oh, work man. out, but it's, you know, I'm remarried now <laughs> oh. and it's amazing. So no regrets and I have a beautiful little boy. But um, so then I was a single dad. So I was forced to switch departments to take care of my son. The other one was forcing us to stay extra shifts and it just wasn't going to work. Um, so I kind of rounded out my career um, in one of the fire departments that, that protects a theme park here in the Orlando area. That's incredible. How many departments did you work so, for? So it's four actual departments. I volunteered for a very short time in a local department here. But once you've been career in busy urban departments, you just feel like a medic ride along when you go volunteer somewhere else. So, um, so yeah, I, I kind of put it, I think it, was, it wasn't even a year that I was in that whole process. But so yeah, four full time career departments. Oh, man, um, of all of them, which one was your favorite? Uh, Anaheim. And there were, don't get me wrong. There was some Hialeah's training was amazing. There's some amazing people there. Orange County, we worked an incredible first year where saw, you know, a huge amount of trauma, fire, that kind of thing. But as far as the professionalism, the, the, the height that the bar was set, um, and then the calls that we got there, again, very Anaheim has Disneyland. Well, right next to that area is some very, very rough you know gangland areas yeah, yeah. um yeah, so yeah, yeah so did a lot and then ended up with a very very incredible crew it was actually an international crew it was me my partner was from south africa and then i had a mexican-american uh, engineer and then a kind of irish american captain so there was this they called us the united nations truck but uh, <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> so but yeah hands down that was my that was my ultimate crew and you know we all went our separate ways for different reasons retirement i moved back to the east coast but for those few years that i i was blessed to have that dream crew and that dream station did you have any of those guys on your podcast yes we did two episodes each was like four hours long which is insane but oh we just God. set up mics you know had a few beers and and just talked and everywhere from you know stories anecdotes to um you know one of my close friends has gone through a couple of back surgeries now another one had hip surgery two of them went through pretty significant mental health struggles so you know there, there was a lot in those two conversations you know before i started having all of these conversations with firemen i didn't realize how many dealt with PTSD. I, I had no idea because I, I was coming from uh, the law enforcement side and I knew that, um, you know, I knew that first responders in, in every field saw some, you know, st tremendously stressful things and had some incredibly stressful days. But I had no idea how many firefighters were dealing with PTSD as well. Yeah. Well, I think one of the, the, you know, as you know, the, the whole stigma now, people are talking about it. Um, but I think one of the sad things is the focus is still on it's what we see through the journey that I've been on through this podcast and the educational side that I've learned. Sleep deprivation is an absolutely huge part. So the shift work is completely carcinogenic. I mean, it's, it literally causes cancer, heart disease, obesity, but also mental health side. It's a big contrib contributor to you know, imbalances in the brain. And then another area that's even less discussed is what we brought through the door when we first put the uniform on. And out of 552 episodes now, I would say probably a solid 50% probably have 
some sort of childhood trauma. And we tend to be drawn towards the first responder or military professions because partly because you want to be the protector. You know, you were a victim or you were in a kind of toxic environment growing up, whatever it was. And so that is a big thing. Like how full was that bucket before you even pinned the badge on your chest? Man, that's an incredible point because, uh, you know, I had my childhood trauma issue where it was domestic violence incident. I climbed out the bedroom window, called 911, and the police were, uh, you know, quick to respond. And they took my mother's boyfriend away. And, um, you know, they were heroes to me that night and forever since then. And so uh, for me, it was become a pilot or become an officer. And I had a, a young family, so 19 years old with a son. And becoming an officer became the easier route rather than having to go to school for two and a half more years. Uh, I was like, well, I can get my associate's degree, take a few tests. And every test I took, I scored well on. And uh, I had no record, obviously. So I, I did well and I got called for every single one. So I started with the uh, New York City PD. I had a month left to finish their academy. And uh, I left there and went to my local county where I still, where I still put in 24 hours, but uh, 24 years, I meant to say. You touched on um, the shift work. I don't know why they don't offer steady tours. I, I don't know who came up with the idea, hey, let's one week you're on days, next week you're on nights, or... Uh, like the people who work steady midnights, steady overnights, I could only do it for six years. But God bless those people because a lot of them, uh, they have horrible sleep for 20 years. And I don't know how they do it. No, and it's, I mean, the fire service, usually we're doing 24-hour shifts. So then, you know, the discussion is, oh, you should be doing 10s or 12s. I, I disagree. I think when you have a firehouse and the ability to lie down, to cook, to, you know, all that stuff, the the skill set that we are responsible for, especially if there's an EMS as well, which I was always in, you know, fire EMS, um, you just you, you can't get that done in 12 hours, you know, and your training and your PT and all that stuff. So the big conversation I think needs to be, and I agree with you, that going from days to nights to days to nights, so that kind of thing. Um, I, your shift schedule in, in law enforcement is known to be you know the worst. Same with nurses and doctors and corrections. Um, but the discussion is never how can we create more time between shifts for these men and women to recover when we've asked them to stay awake when the rest of the country is asleep in their bed. And in the fire service, in most of the country, you'll see what we call 2448, which you know, people will say, oh, one day on, two days off. Well, no work day in the world is 24 hours. It's eight hours, you know, plus a lunch. So it's actually three days on, one day off. We've kind of We've literally shot ourselves in the foot with that description. So, you know, you're you're never able to catch up on that shift. And then the next thing, it's another one, another one. Same with you guys with the 12s or the 10s. And so right now, our a lot of the doctors, nurses, firefighters, cops, their work weeks are a lot higher than the person who, you know, works at the bank, bags your groceries, whatever. And yet they're not sleeping and they're put in these life or death situations. So I really think that we need to completely reframe the way we look at anyone that we ask to stay awake, whether it's in a factory or whether it's in a uniform, 
because it truly is killing that person if they don't get to recover. And the mistakes that you and I would make as we're sleep deprived, you know, can literally take our own lives or someone else's life or, you know, the life of our partner or or crew in, in the fire service. So it's such an important conversation. Money is always like, oh, we can't. What When you look at the long-term cost of workman's comp claims, you know, lawsuits from mistakes, medical retirements, line of duty deaths, you take some of that money and you front load it by actually staffing a department properly, the department would actually save money hand over fist. But they're so ingrained in this old way of doing it, and we just keep lining up at the door because we want to serve, that we need to have someone literally hit control, alt, delete, and be like, look, you know, your NBA stars, your Navy SEALs did not work this way. Why are we doing this to our police, fire, dispatchers, and so on? And I'm so glad you brought up the sleep deprivation because uh, that's one of the reasons why I need to retire like ASAP because the, the more I stay up late uh, till, you know, I, I'm doing nine to five and five to one, one week. And then the next week I'm, so one week I'm getting up to go to the gym at 6 a.m. And then the next week I'm staying up until 1 a.m. And sometimes I get off at 3, 4 a.m. So it's literally like a 24-hour cycle of switching up my sleep whenever I can. I, I've gotten used to it, and um, I just try and always get seven hours. But everyone I've ever talked to about sleep, they're like, try to get on a steady sleep schedule. I'm like, it's impossible doing different shifts. It's, it's impossible. Yeah. Well, I think that's with the decision you're making now, if you speak to – a veteran, you know, and they they were in Army, Marines, you know, Air Force, whatever it was, and they let's say they did eight years. You're like, wow, that's amazing. But you have a cop, firefighter, a medic, and they say, you know, you did 12 years. Oh, why'd you quit? What's wrong? Why didn't you do 25? Well, that's because of a pension. That's not because of the lifespan of how you feel, you know, able to serve. And right now, the way that we do it, we are breaking our men and women down. The perfect illustration. I'm sure it was the same with you. If I think back to the grinder, you know, the 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 um the the training spec. Not the app, not the not the app. No, 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 not the app. I mean you can think about the app you want, but that's what I'm thinking of. <laughs> but no, the training space, so we're all lined up, you know, new recruits. There might be the the chubby one that got through and actually ends up being good, but most of us are gonna be in great shape physically, resilient mentally. And then look at that same crew, and I got to see four different, you know, new new guys in all the departments I started with. Ten, fifteen years later, they are, and many of them are, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly, <laughs> physically and mentally a mess, exactly. They had no intention of getting there as they were standing on that drill ground. So the job, you know, absolutely grinds you down, and until it changes, a decision to make is, you know, what is more important years of health with my family or going into drop you know my my pension getting maxing out on my years for me when when the kind of door opened i love the job but you know it was it was beating me down i'm like well if i'm going to talk about health and wellness i got to walk the walk as well so i chose to transition at that moment not because i was sick of doing the job i love the job i love running calls but the organizational stress the sleep deprivation i saw it making me less able to do my job than I should have been, you know, and, and it was, you know, I was getting more injuries and, um, you know, just, I mean, all, all the different elements that we see. So the conversation of 
turning the page to you know going to a new chapter and being proud of however many years of service you put in is something you never hear 20 it's always about retirement it's always about the pension it's always about you know the the benefits and cobra and all this stuff well it shouldn't be you know if you've got an app on your phone counting down the days to retirement that's a huge red flag that you should probably have been retired already <laughs> I don't have that app, but that's actually a pretty good idea. <laughs> uh, what kind of training? I can tell you're in pretty good shape. What kind of training do you do now? So I do jujitsu. Um, I do striking nice. as well when I can. There's not 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 many uh, schools around where I am as far as that side. Um, and then I've done CrossFit for as an athlete and coach for um, 15 years now. Um, but then I also coach a class so I call Tactical Athlete Strength and Conditioning. And all this is basically strongman and some other things that I put in because CrossFit is amazing, but we don't really carry weight over distance very much. So I'll use sleds, sandbags, kettlebells, and we'll, we'll do, you know, push, pull, carry, drag, climb um, to really kind of fill in those gaps. And that served me pretty well. And then right now I'm, I'm fixing because I had knee surgery on, on both knees, uh, meniscus tears. Um, and so now I'm in the process of rehabbing that. And that's what I think you find when you are in or if you retire out of a first responder profession is one of the biggest things you have to do is get is undo the damage that the job did to you as best as you can. So that's, that's another thing. So I'll do five days a week. I do this kind of knees over toes program that I just started doing to try and, you know, find the weak links in my body and, and address them. I have uh, two meniscus tears, and uh, I don't know if I'll ever get them repaired until until I feel like I can't run or uh, like sometimes when I run I feel a little pain until I feel like I can't do what I normally do. I stopped training jujitsu because I had so many little nagging injuries that I was just like I'd rather just go to the gym and just lift. Um, I am a huge jujitsu fan. How, how many years did you put um, in? Or it's been you... very sporadic again because of the fire services. So you said about consistency yep. with sleep. It's the same with training. Like you know, I mean. Yep. But so I started years ago in LA. Shoot box. They had one, and that was like Fight Club. I mean, literally, just I had jaw dislocations and broken noses, and didn't, oh my god, I learned that I could take a lot of punishment. But I wouldn't say I learned much, you know, as far as jujitsu. But and then just. A few years ago, I started in Orlando, so I put about a year in. They went to medical school, med school, excuse me, uh, medic school, um, and so I just started again now in um, uh, near where I live, and I finally got this consistent schedule. So I just got my blue belt before the knee injuries, so that I, I wear a blue belt, but I feel like I'm still working my way back to actually deserving to have a blue belt. Congratulations. So um, I did Japanese jujitsu, but I rolled all the time. And um, when I went to Japan, I actually brought my gi with me. And uh, I rolled with like the whole school for like two hours. And I hadn't trained for like 10 years. And uh, I was still I was still pretty good. So I wore a blue belt there because anything more or anything less, I felt was just not genuine and not like, you know, not true. But um, I earned my black belt in Japanese jiu-jitsu. In Brazilian jiu-jitsu, I would say I was like a beginner purple belt, you know, because I had, I had rolled for a good solid seven years. And some, sometimes I, I would go three, four times a week, you know, like I just loved rolling jiu-jitsu. Mm -hmm. uh, my son just competed in uh, Naga. Oh, really? yes, you familiar yep. with Naga? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he won. He won his weight, uh, one sixty nine, I believe. He he weighed right. in at, and uh, yeah, he took first, and he took first in the absolute too. Uh, so I'm really proud of him, and um, I, I just I love jujitsu. I tell everyone they should train. You know, especially when I talk to women, I'm like, you should start training jujitsu. Yeah, well, especially <laughs> law enforcement too. I mean, I truly feel that that especially yeah, law enforcement. I mean, you yeah. see some of the videos. Some of the videos are incredible, and you can see immediately that person was a wrestler. They were, you know, um, jiu-jitsu practitioner. But then, sadly, and and the reverse, and the sad. reverse, you can tell who's never trained a day in their life, which is unfortunately uh, 80, 90 percent. Yeah, and then know. you think about that. Well, what's your go-to if you haven't trained? If you haven't got strength and endurance, and you know, some sort of skill set grappling, well, then your go-to is a taser or a lethal force. So, and then I think, yeah. and I'm sure you have the same thing. A lot of the, the law enforcement guests I've had on, once you are at that level, say you're brown, black, and you're you know in great shape, you give off this presence. And a lot of my most dangerous guests in, in a uniform are some of the ones that have been hands-on the least because there's just this yes. thing like, okay, I can tell that person <laughs> is someone I shouldn't mess with. So uh, I was standing outside of the car with my like hands like like this position. And uh, the guy on the street, it was like some some street guy, you know, like he's like a bum, vagrant, uh, but on the younger side. And I could see him sizing me up. And uh, it was like summertime, so I had short sleeves on, and, and I was probably 20 years younger. So the veins were popping in the forearm, you know. And I was training every day at that point, so I was giving off that that you know that authoritative presence. And uh, he was sizing me up, and he's like. He's like, man, you're in pretty good shape. And I was like, thank you. <laughs> but you can see people sizing you up all the time, yeah. you know. They, uh, so your, your appearance is so incredibly important. Yeah. Well, even with the, you know, the, the fire service where we're not really trying to deter anyone, you know, when you show up and whether it's an, you know, a, a medical call or whether you come off the truck and, you know, someone's, you know, 15 floors up or whatever it is, Again, how much faith have you got someone who's, you know, sadly 100 pounds overweight? Can they even get up to the person that, they, you know, we're trying to rescue? So, you know, it's, I think it's, it's more than just an image. It's, you know, as I say, with the phrase that I talk about, how would you feel if your family died because the rescuer hadn't trained? You know, there's a lot of this, you know, would you want you saving you? That's, that's good, but that's all about you. Like, think about you lost your most adored son, daughter, husband, wife because the person that showed up wasn't ready for the job, you know, and that's on ownership on us. And it also goes to, like I said, are we creating an environment for our men and women to thrive or is it actually breaking them down? Have you, um, ha have you know, do you have a lot of volunteers down there in Florida, like volunteer Florida. departments? Cause we have a lot, we have a lot here in New York. So it's interesting. So firstly, no, we don't. I mean, there are sprinkled around. They tend to kind of cover the outlying more rural areas of paid departments. Um, but it's something I talk about a lot too. So, you know, where you are, I'm sure if you look at the actual community, it's probably somewhat densely populated yet. It, yeah. it is. And it's mostly, it's mostly volunteers. Exactly. I think that's absolutely insane. And when you're prioritizing what's most important in life and you think that you're, again, trusting your family's safety in a group who may take their job incredibly seriously, but they're not paid to do it. They're not held to a fitness standard. They're not held to a training standard. And they might be in the middle of installing a boiler 
when they get the call that is just so ass backward to me i mean if you're out in the middle of idaho somewhere and you're in a population of 27 i get it but even then i think the county or even federal should have coverage but when when we're relying on volunteers to what should have been a paid career trained you know highly trained department where they know they don't have to go work somewhere else they actually will be paid to do the job um i think that's an area that we need to address in the fire service we have uh, five million people in our two counties. That uh, so I, I'm I'm in Suffolk County, and then the adjoining county is Nassau County. There's uh, five million between the two counties, and then and then it then, and then they touch the city. So um, I, have you ever been up to New yes, York? Yes, I actually used to work in um, upstate New York in the Adirondacks on summer camps years ago, just an exchange program. So yeah, I've, I've been in the city a lot. I actually climbed the One World Trade with the double amputee veteran a few years ago but um yeah it's a beautiful city i love visiting i wouldn't want to live there but i love visiting the city (laughs) (laughs) i used to think that i wanted to live in the city for like a year because this is always things to do it's it's exciting but uh the older i get i wouldn't want to live there either. i like sky (laughs) it's hard to see the sky when you're in manhattan so (laughs) and and i used to want to live in san diego but uh california is just like it's crazy with the taxes and the population and just the uh the political scene it's just california's crazy yeah, right now i lived in um burbank and then huntington beach i think i was there a total of uh, what would have been i was anaheim so three and a half years and then it was it was fantastic but coming you know standing in florida where i feel like our governor this last year and a half has done a great job in just assessing and adjusting according to what we're actually seeing with our own eyes seeing some of the kind of um uh political choices and things being imposed especially on our men and women that serve selflessly yeah. and then being told they're going to lose their job if they don't comply um it breaks my heart and i think it's disgusting yeah 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 uh, he's he's been doing a great job and i think most first responders love your yes, governor <laughs> i think most people do right now to be honest yeah, he's he's doing a great job. Uh, he seems like a little bit of a wild man, but he's doing a great yeah. job. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to be though. When when the machine is spurting out the same people, left and right, the same figure, it's a different color yep. tie. Yep, yep. You have to really be someone who's willing to to kind of go head to head because I think our system, the way we choose quote unquote leaders, is broken. And there are incredible men and women out there that do an amazing job in those positions, but they're just not given the opportunity because they're not millionaires and they have ethics. So (laughs) if we can change the requirements to be a leader in this country, I think we'd find, you know, some incredible men and women to to lead us. You've had some incredible guests. Um, How many years have you been doing it now Uh, on your podcast? uh, Five years, just over five. And uh, I I don't know if we said it at the beginning or if we said it before we started recording, but some of the people who said yes to your podcast when you were new, uh, you mentioned Tim Kennedy. Yes, Tim Kennedy. You had him on your podcast? Yes, Tim's been on, I think, three times. He's actually going to be coming on again soon. He just wrote a book. Um, which I think is on pre-order. Tim Kennedy, he's he's a maniac. He's a, he's a funny dude. Yes, and see so again, you have the caricature of Tim, which is the knife-licking, yeah. you know, lunatic. Yeah. And then <laughs> when you look at actually what he does, that we sheepdog response, great, great class. You know, he's out there traveling the country, even though he could really just sit back and you know all his investments and things that he has and do nothing. 
um, you know, he's training law enforcement, he's training civilians, he's, you know, he's doing an incredible job. So he, he really is a very kind human being and one of the most dangerous men on the planet too. So it's a, a, to me, that's what a man actually is, you know, walk softly, carry a big stick. I know him from the UFC because I've been a fan since 1993. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Yeah. So yeah, he, he did incredibly. He, um, actually, the first time I interviewed him, he was just about to fight Kevin, not Kevin, Kelvin, I think it is, um, Gastelum. And Gastelum, he actually yeah. lost that fight. I mean, barely. And then Tim had beat other people mm-hmm. end up being champion. So technically, Tim probably could have been, I think he was middleweight, wasn't he? So middleweight champion, to be honest. But um, yeah, but when you take a guy who's also, you know, full active duty in the military and doing all the other things he did to still be able to compete at that level is absolutely insane. Yeah. Uh, who is some of your other incredible guests that you can remember off the top of your head? Like top top three or four um well i mean not to not to stack them because obviously they're all amazing in in different ways um who comes to top of mind so just to give you some out of left field because i've had jocko and all these people and they're they're great but if we're talking about some lesser known people um there's a firefighter friend of mine dustin hawkins who was really the first person who told a truly transparent courageous mental health story and he actually created an app now and a whole system to train um counselors to actually be able to 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 treat us you know to understand what it's like to to have a first responder sitting in front of you so that's episode 39 he was incredible there was another guy ishmael bay who was a boy soldier in sierra leone his parents were murdered. He was forced to kill. When, you know, forced to kill. Either you execute it or you kill. That's your two options. Oh, my God. Um, and he was ultimately saved at, I think it was 17 or 18 years old, by the American Red Cross. And now he's a UNICEF ambassador saving boy soldiers, child soldiers. So his story is incredible. Um, I mean, there's, there's just so many. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, the list goes on and on. If you talk about impact, Sebastian Junger, um, he wrote a book called Tribe. Um, you know his, his perspective on transitioning out of the military, first responders, the the community element of tribalism, not the negative side. Um, it's Kirk Parsley, Doctor Kirk Parsley, was a Navy SEAL who became a physician, went back to the SEAL teams, and his work on sleep deprivation, I think, was you know pivotal in the tactical space of getting us to understand you know all the the negative chronic and acute implications of sleep deprivation um so yeah i mean that's a 552 there's a few names for you but there's just so many so many amazing people <laughs> oh man um you've you've been podcasting now um do you have any tips for people who, who are thinking about getting in the space because we mentioned you know it's a lot of work and you have to you have to consistently show up. Yeah, well, consistency is the biggest thing. So um, I I think it was Tim Ferriss. I listened to to him talking about starting a podcast. And this was probably, you know, five plus years ago now. And he actually just did a kind of revisit of that topic. And it was interesting hearing like now, okay, all right, sweet. I'm doing most of the things that he said you should be doing. So, um, but consistency was the one thing I remember him really underlining because it is hard work but 
he also said that he didn't even think the podcasting space was even close to saturated yet. So my first thing, it's definitely no, not. It's not. And the same with, with writing. Like I wrote a book last year and you can literally, you know, you can self-publish, you can write a book, go on Amazon, upload your manuscript. And, and now you're an author. It's incredible. So where social media, what's the name of it's called a uh, one more light life, death and humanity through the eyes of a firefighter. But you know, we've got the social media thing, you know, people are tweeting and they want a voice. Well, that's very reactive, very, um, you know, shallow minded in a lot of lot of uh, instances. But to do a podcast and or a book or something, now you're really having to think, put work in and you can truly have a voice then. I mean, my voice is obviously interviewing other people, but I still get to ask the questions. I still get to kind of, you know take my experience and try and pull good information from these incredible minds so firstly if you have an idea of a podcast and as tim Ken uh, tim ferris talks about a lot too as long as your motivation isn't immediately i just want to make money because that will never work and i agree 100 percent. you got to have a passion you got to want to do something good in the world um then why not i mean seriously why not you you record an episode and then you put it out into cyberspace and people want to listen to it they hit play so you're not you know there's there's room for all of us um but consistency is a big thing if you're super busy and you can only do one episode a month then tell the world you're going to do one episode a month you know but if you try and do too many like if i did three a week right off out the gate i probably would have gone two and then one and then people would be like oh well this podcast crashed and burned so consistency is it if you keep showing up as you said other people will fall away you didn't want them to fall away but, you know, attrition exists in police academy and everywhere. There is attrition in the world. Everywhere. So everywhere. you have to be the one that's still standing. And that's it. And I think if your content is coming from a good place and you're truly um, passionate about what you do, it won't feel like a chore. And you, you just find yourself there, still there one day when, you know, now all of a sudden you've got X amount of episodes and X amount of downloads and you're suddenly one of the ones that people go to and talk about so i mean i think when you released episode number 100 was that like a milestone for you and, and episode number 500 yes so that's a that's a great question so episode 100 um i interviewed my wife and that was a very okay. powerful story she actually the boyfriend before me took his own life and he was on the phone to her Oh so my God. she has trauma. She and she's a um, in optometry school now, med school for you know eye doctor. Um, so we actually got a little bit drunk and then did that episode because she needed some Dutch courage to do it. And then episode okay. five hundred was uh, Doctor Edith Eager, and she was in Auschwitz. She was actually forced to dance for Doctor Joseph Mengele, who was the I forget the name, Angel of Death, I think is what they called him. Um, horrendous individual. Wow. And then she became a psychologist. So incredible woman. She's 93, I think. So what an honor to get to speak to someone like that to commemorate 500 episodes. So, yeah, I mean, they are. They, they don't, in theory, mean anything, but you can make them something to truly celebrate. Well, just the fact that you got to over 100 and then over 500, and now you're on your way to 1,000, it's it's incredible. How many episodes do you release per week? So it's three per week. Um, like I said, the the COVID took me from two a week to three a week because I just again, my my goal is to get these minds out there without you know just completely saturating and losing quality and everything. But you know I've got people talking about 
ketamine for you know PTSD and that kind of thing. An anesthesiologist. I mean, another amazing story. I just had one of Jocko's uh, team members, Cody G um, Gantley. Have I got that right? I've got two two Cody's um, that are very very similar names in in the last few episodes. Um, Gady, I think it is Cody Gady. I think um, he was a Marine. He works with Echelon Front now. And if you're listening, Cody, I apologize for butchering your name. Um, so, I mean, there's just so many different stories from so many different areas. I've got a fellow cop I'm just about to put out. Um, and, uh, you know, he's got a very strong mental health story. He has his own podcast, Brownie in the Blue. Merrick Cassell is his name. Um, so when you have all these stories, I just did one on human trafficking. You just want to, like, get them out there in the world. So that was why I went from two to three. And it's now, like, finding that balance between getting them out there but also not losing quality because the workload for three a week each one is usually like hour and a half two and a half hours long um you know it becomes a lot so then you've got to be careful not to lose quality you know because of quantity who's doing your graphics and your editing are you doing all that do stuff yourself everything myself you? yeah so, wow yeah that's that's where it becomes hard but i mean on, i've heard people talking about delegation but when it's a passion project this is the kind of thing that you can do where you can do all the work and find ways of being more efficient, find new software and that kind of thing. But, you know, I know which soundbite I want to use for the promo, you know, which picture I know what I want the sound to sound like. I know, um, you know, when I sound like I've been bumbling a bit and I just clean that up, you know, those kind of things. And if I delegated it, it I'd have to then check it again, you know. So as I always want to keep it to the size where I can do it on my own um in the same way as a carpenter probably wouldn't want someone else doing some of his woodwork you know so I, that's the way i look at it so yeah up to this point i've been able to do it on my own with the hours that i allocate to to work on the podcast what other uh, projects are you working on because i i know you wrote a book uh what's what else you working um, on um there's a i did a video and it was just a total one-off video with um uh Unsteady was the name. Uh, Ex Ambassadors thinks the band. So I just put a whole bunch of slides and pictures, and um, it was to send a mental health message to you know five years ago to get our fellow men and women to realize that you're not alone, you're not weak, you know you, everyone else isn't doing okay. You know that's a facade. Um, so I'm working on doing some more videos because that got watched like 1.6 million times or something. So clearly there's a, a you know, desire for more like that, and that's a phenomenal song. It's a great yes, choice. Yeah, I mean it fit. Uh, so you did you you got their permission, I guess. So on YouTube, um, it ended up just tagging it. So I think it's kind of, these days it's kind of like um, uh, you know the, the TikTok and all that stuff. You know, it's it's a way of promoting it now. So you know, I wasn't making any money from it. I don't you know um, monetize my YouTube channel. So it's just a free video for everyone. So I think because it was free and it wasn't connected to some money making thing. Um, what's the name of the video um, if you google I wish my head could forget what my eyes have seen um, it should bring up that video and if you put it in YouTube you should definitely do that um, and then so that's I'm doing kind of similar more updated one with different song um, and then I'm beginning the concept of writing a second book but it's purely in it's absolute infancy at the moment so I'm still kind of ruminating around the ideas so i can formulate characters and 
you know, the first one was a factual book. It's a lot of stories from my career with kind of lessons learned on physical health, mental health, obesity, injury. The second one is going to be a fictional story based in the first responders world that will hopefully sow seeds into people's minds about what we do, you know, what we go through, some of our perspectives of the nation's health, you know, so that's, that's the goal. Take fiction and apply the same kind of things I try to do with the first one. That's a great idea. I love it. Um, I should have asked you earlier because uh, I always love to ask, what's one of the funniest things that you can remember happening on the job or one of the craziest, funniest or craziest things that you can remember I happening? I think the craziest is easy because of, uh, it springs to mind immediately. So, um, you know, you, you have the whole tongue-in-cheek cat in a tree, which I've done as a firefighter. I've had a man in a tree, a tree trimmer who trimmed, <laughs> an amateur tree trimmer who trimmed on his way up. And then the very last limb, he bound the saw, it got caught, and then dislocated his shoulder. So we had to go rescue him out of a tree. That was quite funny. Um, and But the craziest one is we got called to a gentleman. And, you know, I don't think he was completely, you know, um, mentally sound. but Altered mental status. Yes. But, I mean, he, he, was, uh-huh. he was not altered. I think that was his normal state. But the... Okay. The, okay. the reason we were called is he just got new dentures and he didn't like the way they tasted. So okay. <laughs> not only did we end up transporting him because uh, I forget what he said, but he basically requested to go to the hospital. And in a lot of jurisdictions, if they say they want to go, you got to take him. But then he started getting kind of belligerent. So I ended up having to take another medic with me or EMT just to make sure, you know, he didn't go crazy in the back. So that one call took a vehicle and, you know, I mean, if the person was in the back, there would have been an engine and a, an ambulance, a rescue for a guy who didn't like the way his dentures tasted. So, yeah, that's some of the craziness that you and I see that most people don't. I, I You've probably – you used to work in the hood, and I, I used to work in the hood too. And I, I never realized how many people call for a bug in the ear. Uh, you know, like they've been sleeping and a roach crawls into the ear. I, I didn't know that that was a thing. Yeah, that's disgusting. <laughs> until, until, until until I worked in the hood and then I heard it on the radio and I'm like, oh my god, people call nine one one for this. Yeah. I mean, that's so. I mean, I've had you know crazy people that are running around naked. People say um, derogatory terms to me that will be referred to other races, but they say it to me, which is super confusing. Cause... Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, so I mean, but you know, when you the funniest thing another another kind of like moment I had is I remember going on one of those crazy calls and then coming back. And we were watching Reno 911, the show, and it could have been the uh-huh. call that we just ran. It was exactly, you know, it was that uh-huh. crazy. So yeah, when, when you know, when comedy cop shows or fire shows match the call you just ran, that's when you know you're in a, you know, an amusing first you. So <laughs> Reno 911 had so many realistic moments that they put a spin on it, and it, there was so many moments. It was such a yeah, good show. It was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Uh, how much TV do you watch now? Do you watch any um, shows? I, I don't really watch much TV. I disconnected my cable um, a solid 10 years ago now. My little boy was probably three or four then, and he started telling me about this knife. You don't need a knife to cut fruit. There's this thing. And I'm like, oh, Jim is a bloody QVC ever between kids' television shows. <laughs> and so I was, all right, I'm done. So I cut it off, and that was when... I think Netflix just just starting up, so I was able to get his all his TV shows, you know, without the ads. Um, so 
you know, I hear people talking about Walking Dead and all these things. And I don't know if you have this too. When I went through a kind of horror phase when I was 17, 18 as a kid watching those movies, as a responder now to the concept that, oh, I've had a hard day in the office. I'm just going to go and watch a cabin full of teenagers murdered and mutilated. I don't see the entertainment value in that. So, for example, Walking Dead, I couldn't watch it. It wasn't like I was triggered. I just, this is not entertainment to me. This is like some of the horrors that we see at work. So, um, but I do love uh, documentaries and I do love unique films. Like our age, you see the same story kind of hashed over and over and over again. And they're yeah. remaking all our kind of 80s movies now too. Um, so, yeah, documentaries and docuseries, I, I really... I really, really like those. And I think that's the genre that's doing incredibly well at the moment. What did you think of uh, The Game Changer? It was good. I mean, everything with a, with a grain of salt. It was sensational. It was sensationalized. Yeah. Now, I had, sure. I had yeah. um, James on the podcast. Um, wow. Yeah, and it was, it was interesting. Like he, you know, you get this, this, this arguing with vegans and carnivores and all this stuff with a middle ground where they all agree you know, have more vegetables in your diet, remove processed foods. And sadly, when you get these, it's like these, you know, extremes like uh, Michael Moore, as far as walking the walk with health, because funny, because he did a a film called Sicko. He's a horrible example, but there is a lot of value to his. Just look look at him. You just look at him. But there's a lot of value to his documentaries, you know. He looks sick. He, he looks, looks sick. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if we lost him soon, to be honest, and I don't want that. But when you look at Bowling for Columbine and some of these, you know, it, it, I'm not – I totally understand the need for a gun in American society at the moment. I have one in my safe in the next room. However, you know, when we have the NRA campaign, campaigning right after Columbine, for example, that's disgusting. That's not right. Yeah, yeah it's So not there's, right. there's elements of truth in a lot of these, but, yeah, none of them are – you know, we all have a, um, a lean to our – you know, opinions and views. But I think there's a lot, if you just kind of understand going in that you're going to take the middle ground, um, you know, game changers. Yeah. I mean, if there's people performing at high, high levels that are just, you know, that are vegan and that works for their body type, then you can't say veganism is all bad, you know, but does that work for everyone? Would an Inuit do well on a vegan diet? Probably not. You know, if they've been raised on blubber for generations. So, um, you know, I think that's what you got to go in to a lot of these movies but sadly you know the kind of american model is that sensationalism you know you have to have the explosions and sound effects and you know yeah. whereas you know, i think more vegetables is what we all need <laughs> so there we go you mentioned um that you do crossfit i i've always been fascinated by it but also afraid of injury because uh my neighbors were doing it for a while and my neighbor looked incredible and uh a guy i met in the gym he looked like like he was a Greek god, you know, and um, they, you do get an incredible shape, but not the women, though. <laughs> I feel like the women get bulky shoulders. So it's, it's been interesting because I got into it very early. I think, you know, it really, really kind of started around, you know, the beginning of the millennia. So like, I think uh, Coach Glassman was like, you know, 01, 02 was when people were in his garage, you know, and then it expanded from there. So I got in like 05, 06. There's a firefighter I worked with that went to one of the first gyms in Huntington Beach. And so I've seen its infancy from us purely just trying to figure it out from the internet and a few videos that some of the OGs did to when the CrossFit Games got big. And I think that was the issue. 
great athletes who go to CrossFit Games and compete and do really well. Your average, you know, Joe in the gym or Jessica in the gym, you know, you come in, you're like, I want to be Rich Froning. Well, Rich Froning was an athlete since he was a kid. He just was an extension of everything else he'd done. He was actually a firefighter too. Um, And so what I saw was egos from did you rich, is uh i'm sorry to interrupt is rich on your list did you ever I get got rich? him yeah he's on my list you know i mean there's a lot of people on my list and you know if and when then yeah there's no rush so but i would love to i yeah, think he'd be yeah. a great conversation um but uh so then so you have egos walking through the door i want to be the next rich froning or sam briggs or whoever um but then you also had um inexperience in the coaching because a lot of us that came from coaching was the Globo Gym style, style coaching or sports coaching. Most of us didn't understand how to coach a handstand, how to coach a snatch, um, you know, these kind of movements. Uh, so I think those two create a perfect storm. And if people, especially in wanting to compete, they were in the gym a lot longer than CrossFit was redesigned for. So I feel now we've gone full circle. We've got true experts have really kind of found their footing in the Olympic but, uh, Olympic lifting side, the gymnastics, the endurance, all these elements of CrossFit. You can go to seminars specifically for those. A lot of local people have good Olympic lifting coaches and in their actual gyms. And I think the ego side has changed where that shiny object that was the CrossFit Games has become less important now. And I think people are back to just wanting to be fitter, faster, stronger rather than winning events. So in my gym, for example, we saw a kind of uptick in injuries for a bit during that game's shiny object phase. Now you hardly mm-hmm. ever see it because we're doing, you know, accessory work and mobility and, um, you know, less volume for that hour. And if people want to compete, awesome, they come and do extra hours. But for the average Joe, myself included, I'm in and out in, a, in an hour. And if you're not sweating and tired in, in an hour, then, you know, you probably didn't push hard enough and some days you shouldn't either some days should be you know just kind of 50 60 70 percent and that's the other thing is that kind of undulation of intensity i respect your honesty on that because uh that's the biggest thing with brazilian jiu-jitsu places is when people bring their ego and they don't want to tap you know but but then it's not just not wanting to tap it's uh guys who are like who just want to dominate in the gym and just go too hard you know like in every gym there's that guy you know and you you know you just don't want to roll with that guy exactly i i I drive um what is it 40 minutes each way to train at a gym specifically because of that reason i trained here there's you know a lot of kind of like trying to win roles here um where i train now are phenomenal phenomenal people they uh, they won the team in the Naga. They just went to a couple of months ago. They won the, the you know, their team won the overall. Um, but so humble, and you know the, gen- the roles can be gentle. They have their their hours where the the competitors all go a little bit harder with each other. But I'm 47. I was a fireman, you know. I got smashed up. I did stunts on the side, so I got smashed up, you know, from both ends. And so I just want to roll, you know. I want I want to when I'm done, I want to be tired, but I want to be able to do another round. I don't want to be hurt. I don't want to. You know, so I tap right. early for a start. If I, I'm, I'm experienced enough to know when they got me. I'm like, all right, reset. We're good. Um, but yeah, yeah, that whole ego thing, that whole you know, smashing the other guy. I mean, each to their own. But that's not that's not my game. You know, you won that role, but you now lost four months of training because you ripped your shoulder. It doesn't make any sense. 
I walked into a uh, gym with a very famous guy. I, I won't say his name, obviously, but uh, there was a lot of ego in the room, and I could just, I felt it. I could see it in the guys that were training, and I was like, nope, this place, I just, I was standing on the side watching them roll, and I'm like, nope, this is definitely not for me. And not to mention, they were all um, plus 200 pounders, you know, like 190 jacked ripped and i was like i need to train with guys that are a little bit smaller (laughs) i I, you know like i'm tired of having uh bruised ribs and and just you know feeling sore all the time so but watching my son he posted them all on uh, youtube i'll share it with you later but uh watching him it, it got the juices flowing and I was like, all right, so when are we training no gi? And he's like, dad, you don't want to roll with me. What <laughs> <laughs> well, belt is he now? He's like, he's 21 and I'm 45, uh, soon to be 46. So um, he's like, you don't want to roll with me, dad. He's like, I, ro-, he's like, I, I roll like a wrestler because he's wrestled since um, kindergarten. Ah, yeah, so that's a great combination. Yeah, you yeah. got wrestling and then jujitsu. I mean, that's it. And we see it in UFC. Once they get hold of you, you're kind of yeah. screwed. Yeah, so um, he wants to fight. I, I don't want him to fight. I don't want him to go that route. But he's been, he looks at it as more competition. He doesn't have that, I want to hurt you. He's just, I want to compete and, and win. That's his more his attitude. Um, but I think the way to create the perfect fighter is that base of wrestling, you know, from kindergarten all the way through high school, college, and then layer in a few years of jujitsu and then maybe go to Thailand and do some, <laughs> you don't have to go to Thailand, but I'm just saying, you know, for the fantasy fighter, send, send that person off to Thailand and then have them train in Muay Thai for two years and then come back and uh, go to like a gym in Brooklyn and do some boxing learn some uh, he- some good head movement cuz that's a big difference between boxing and uh, muay thai is muay thai they don't have any head movement no, no cuz they're worried <laughs> I mean, that's the thing when you when you bring in knees and elbows and clinches it changes it but then what you, i've seen in the ufc is when people's skills nullify each other like the two boxers i mean the two wrestlers you see all the time that will then box you know so yeah yeah that's what that's yeah. what they're doing they're, they they like uh, Colby Covington and Kamaru Usman that uh that first fight even the second fight, there was very little wrestling because uh, I heard a fighter say that wrestling really tires you out oh, God, too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I'm not a wrestler, but yeah, when you do clinch work and stuff, or even just you know when you're being mounted or someone's got knee on belly or side control, just trying to shrimp out, trying yeah, to escape, exhausting. trying to escape. It's it's exhausting. Um, I I used to roll with a guy who used to run marathons, and and. He, Every time we rolled, he always said, "Man, this is a different type of feeling." Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. It's a. Di- that's why I tell everyone like you have to train jujitsu because it's a different type of feeling that you've never felt before. You know, like there's very few places where you can go and do wrestling, but there's a lot of places where you can go and do jujitsu yeah. a- as an adult. Absolutely, and it's the the humility. I think you know it's in a good school. There are people that could murder you in their sleep, and they're yes. some of the nicest people yes. you know. Um, but also, I think in in our professions, it's a good place to get really uncomfortable and and be in a, yes. in a you know in a place that scares you, and have to relax and have to figure it out. And you know you might still get tapped, but at least you didn't panic. You know, at least you 
you you didn't quit. Oh, I don't want to roll. I'm tired. No, go and do another one when you're tired. You know, and I think it's the same with CrossFit and the strongman stuff I do. You know, it shouldn't be all the time, but once, twice a week. You know, go go somewhere that's a little you know less fun, so that when you're in a foot pursuit or you know in the middle of a structure fire, the last time you were in a really scary place wasn't years ago. It was Tuesday. What are you, what are you weighing right now? Uh, I've I've literally stayed the same weight my whole adult life, so I'm right at like 170 or six feet. Okay. All right, that's a really good. Uh, you got pretty good sized shoulders, I can see. That's a good frame, but that's uh, that's slim. One seventy. Yeah, six foot. I'm not the biggest lad in the block, that's for sure. <laughs> I get rolled around a lot in the gym, but um, but that's the thing. So with the addressing injuries, I found that a big limiting factor the last few years. So um, I think there's a lot of untapped strength that I used to have that I lost through pain. You know, so I'm putting mm-hmm. a lot of energy into really strengthening up these kind of weak links so hopefully i'll be actually be able to roll the clock back a few years and be a little bit more uh imposing on the mat because right now i'll be 100 percent honest i mean i get tapped all the time all the time and i'm you know brand new blue belt it's not like i'm expecting to to be winning but um some of these young lads that are in the the dojo all the time i mean they're just you know even when i'm i'm almost close i don't get there you know so the, the humility dose is unending but uh my last few years of training, I didn't want to roll with guys in their twenties. I just wanted to roll with older guys, <laughs> you know, for forty plus. Um, I, I've seen ads for forty plus jujitsu, you know. I've seen ads for yeah, it. Yeah, you know. Well, I think it's just that it's 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 taking the the dog fight out, you know, and and just doing more of the flow rolling. Um, and, and then you know, like yes. I said, every so often have one with someone that you trust where you can step it up a little bit, wrestle a little bit more, scramble a little bit more, but still, you know don't rip their arm off when you be, go for the submission. Yeah. Yeah. Be, and be yeah, safe. I, I mean, know? even mobility, you That's, know, when we get older, our shoulders aren't as flexible as some of the 20 year old women that we have in the, the gym where you're trying to get a Kimura and the late, you know, their arms, <laughs> the other side of the room and they're still not tapping. So, yeah. So Kimuras, I've never been a big fan of because, um, you know, a strong guy can resist it. I, I know they're a little controversial, but I feel like, if you can get someone's back and get their neck, there's very few people in the world, unless they outweigh you by, you know, double your weight, but there's very few people in the world that can resist a carotid choke. Yeah. Well, you know? that's the good thing about being skinny. I got, you know, narrow forearms. So once you can get them <laughs> underneath and you can get that nice little clamp down, then yeah. But even now, I mean, you know, like I said, the gym that I train, I think it's a kind of, I think I'm I'm beating myself more than I should because I think uh, you know there's just some really good people in there and the coach is a great teacher. But um, you know even when you get the the back, sometimes you know, some of these people just reverse it on you. Like wait a second, this is <laughs> this is supposed to be a really dominant position. I just, I, I, I just had <laughs> exactly. your back. What the hell? Now I'm tapping because you got my foot. So um, yeah, I, I miss it every time. Every time I watch YouTube videos, I miss it. Um, every time I talk to someone who's still actively training, I'm, I, I just, I always miss it. I'll forever be a fan. Um, but I don't foresee myself doing any kind of regular rolling, you know, it hurts. (laughs) It hurts. That's the thing. So that's what that took me on is that journey of, okay, what hurts? Why does it hurt? How do I fix it? And I think that was the thing like with the meniscus snip, um, one of the two, they're both, I think they're called jug handle tears. If I've got that right. Um, 
it was literally pinched between my tib fib and my femur so it was oh my god my son had my son yeah, had that so that was really painful so i couldn't squat or anything with it so I, that had to be addressed you know i'm a huge thing of rehab you got surgery I'm sorry did you get yeah, surgery on it orthoscopic but then i had a bad back injury which i healed all with um chiropractic and um, physical therapy, I think, or foundation training. So I'm very anti-surgery, but with those, when you look at it anatomically, there's this literally a flap that's kind of you know floating around now. Um, it was locking up all the time. It was painful. Um, with those specifically, I ended up doing surgery, but now I'm doing the rehab to stabilize the knee around that surgery so that it doesn't click and hurt anymore. So, um, yeah. If I'm ever down in Florida and we roll, I would be really, really really easy yeah no no it's come down, i mean the, my school up in gainesville that's where it is where the university of florida is um an amazing school and, and you'd have a whole room full of people that would be you know chill i mean you just you know you just tell them at the beginning hey keep it easy and you know the the what we call beginner class which is still everyone is is very chill and then they have the advanced class which is really more like the competitive side that's when they step it up and scramble and go a little bit harder and you know you see some black eyes and stuff from that but no, it's, uh, it's you know, like I said, I've been around enough to know what a good gym looks like and a bad gym, and I drive, you know, 30 miles each way just to go train in this one place. I, I'm going to hit you with my uh, last five questions because uh, I know you got to run. So uh, what's your definition of a hero? Because you've spoken to a lot of them. Um, I mean, firstly, what's interesting is a lot of these elite performers, even like Delta operators have the same imposter syndrome that we all do. So that was a big, you know, like, wow moment. You would assume. Like, who, who am I? Like, who yeah, am I? Yeah. You know, and no one knows I suck. No one knows I'm scared. No one, you know what I mean? When we're all thinking the same thing. Um, but I think heroism really is just about doing the right thing. And it's hard to do the right thing, especially when, you know, say you're a younger you know, say you're a teen right now, you know, and you've grown up in, you know, what is norm, TikTok's a norm, you know, this, this last couple of years is within your formative childhood. So when you question things, and, and you find a true ethical path, and you walk it, whether it's popular or not, um, I think that's truly heroism, that's courage, you know, it's, it, you're a hero, if you ask for help, you know, in this world where we think everyone, you know, everyone's fine and we're a coward if we say we're struggling. No, I mean, you're a hero if you do that, because then you end up becoming a leader. You become a shining you know, beacon of light for other people to do the same thing. So it's a perfect answer and it's a perfect segue to my next question. And I think you've already answered it. But when stress is at its highest and you're starting to feel like um, a little burnt out or at your breaking point how do you save yourself and how do you show yourself um, i had to do that recently i actually um went back to see my family after three years because of the covid restrictions and right around that time i was in probably the deepest i've been comparatively or since my my divorce which was brutal um and this time around what really worked um i was around you know nature i was with my family so that was you know a very fortunate thing but it was it was forcing myself initially to meditate every morning. I used the app Headspace because my mind was just this maelstrom, you know, and, the, and the, the analogy I used after I came out the other side and looked back is those, say the lottery, they have those little ping pong balls of the numbers and it's in that little cage. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Well, each of those ping pong balls is a relevant stressor, a relevant thing that you have to address, a bill, you know, work, whatever. But what happens when you're anxious or depressed is 
especially anxious, is that fan is turned on, those balls are bouncing all over that cage. Well, to me, meditation turned off that fan. Those things didn't go away. I still had to address them, but it allowed me to prioritize them and then start working at them. So that was huge. Exercise is huge and understanding that you shouldn't always crush a workout. Sometimes just going for a swim or a walk is more healing than doing Murph in in a vest. Um, and then being outside, turning off screens and just being in nature, leave your phone at home and just walk. You'll get sun on your face, you know, fresh air um, and just kind of reset. So those are some of the tools I found that work really well. I do all of those things. <laughs> well, good. <laughs> uh, are you a coach now? Or would you ever consider coaching? coaching like fitness coaching, I mean? Uh Fitness coaching, health coaching, business coaching, uh, any kind of coaching. No, and it's, inter it's an interesting kind of reason from my perspective is I think what has allowed me to be successful with the podcast is I don't put myself out there as an expert. Now, am I strong in some areas? You know, yes, certain things I, I, I know and have experience about, you know, more than, than some. Um, so I don't because my particular project i feel like this free library that the podcast is is a resource and you know i direct people to all these coaches so you know you're looking to get into police and fire jeff nichols ex seal team six strength and conditioning guru for example go use his program matt chan go use his i mean there's so many great people so um but i mean have i found myself coaching unofficially i'm sure you know i mean i'm always out there trying to help people and but uh, as far as a, as a business, no. The only coaching I do really is um, the the class I do, and that's a free class too. So I, any responder can come do it in the Ocala area for free. Um, but that's technically the only coaching that I do. I was trying to think of what the acronym was. I had uh, TSAC in my head. It's T A S C, uh, and I forgot the rest. It was uh, <laughs> say it again. What yeah, the so, coaching so was? it's funny because TSAC that's a great NSCA organization i love i love their uh tactical strength and conditioning so mine's just the opposite tactical athlete strength and conditioning so tasc tactical yeah. athlete um what's your best ability what's your 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 power today Oof. um everyone struggles with that question because that's a yeah, tough question yeah um i mean honestly i think the the best ability is understanding that you're not the best in any way, shape, or form, and the, have the humility to constantly be improving. And I'm not talking about making more money or be able to bench more, but just constantly checking in with yourself, making sure you're being kind and compassionate, not only to other people but to yourself as well. So to yourself, yeah, just to just ne never being satisfied with who you are today, but also enjoying who you are today. So it's kind of that dichotomy constant and never-ending improvement but also being grateful for what you are and what exactly. you have 100 percent. if you had a comic superpower this is my last one what would it be and why it would be the uh don't be a dick slap to the face and everyone you hit starts being nice <laughs> <laughs> don't be a dick <laughs> eventually the world would start becoming kinder and kinder you probably have really sore hands though but <laughs> Oh, uh, well, I, I imagine like one of those rubber slappers and then people with like a handprint on their face and then and then they have to be nice because people know what the slap there was. Go. There we go. <laughs> so, yeah, I think, yeah, the, the, I mean, it's, it's cliche, but seriously, that 
to simply have the ability to heal someone that's causing violence, addiction, whatever in their life, you would change the world. And sadly, that's not even a superpower. It's just leadership and creating an environment to do so. But you think about the United States, we're basically the most affluent country on the planet. We have the resources. So we truly could create an environment for most people to actually be grateful to you know have a sense of community a sense of tribe sadly i think in a lot of countries at the moment we're seeing the opposite where they're dividing us and setting us against each other so the opposite of what's going on now would be an incredible superpower i um i i i want to thank you for all of your time and you know all of your work that you've been doing with your podcast i i look down just to make sure double check that i was recording because i was like this is a great conversation <laughs> do you have any because uh, i had one of those mishaps recently where i looked i just want to give a shout out to riverside because i love the app it's very simple to tell that you're recording and uh like zoom i use sometimes when the person doesn't really have the mic and headphones set up you know i'll use zoom as a backup or if for whatever reason they have trouble with with getting on the app but did you ever have any mishaps where, like, you thought you were recording and it, it didn't record and you realized after, like, oh, my God, I didn't record? So I've had two types. Um, one where we started recording that, oh, I just, I've got to go grab something. So I stopped. And then when they came back, I hadn't hit it. Never for a long, long time. But I lost the first, like, 10 minutes, which usually is kind of an icebreaker intro because mine are long. Yeah. So it wasn't a big, big yeah. deal. Um, but what I have had, which is interesting, has been a two or three where – like face to face one time the microphone was like all this white noise static um and a couple other ones and it ended up that we redid it and the second one was much better so um sometimes god the universe so you do so you do remote you do remote and face to face yeah i do face to face when i can that, to me that's the gold standard sometimes i think it's it's more relaxed when you're doing it this way because you're not having to stare at each other the whole time um but, but i do <laughs> like especially if you know for example if i have you know a jujitsu guy on i just did yeah, I roll with them. I took the class and then we sit down and we do it. That's a really awesome kind of, you know, chemistry there. Um, so, yeah. What uh, What are you bringing to the interview? You're bringing your laptop and two plug-in um, mics? I used to do that. Now I have a little device. Um, I can't remember the, the company. Oh, here it is. I have the Zoom um, H6 and you just literally plug the mics right into that. And it's the size of a you know, big cell phone. Um, and that's it. So as long as you've got batteries and an you know, SD card in there, that's all you need. So it makes it very portable and you don't have to worry about it. Wow, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Is it uh, two USB mics? Um, no, it's the MIDI, I think is what they call it. You know, the, the regular studio mic. Because um, I don't think you can plug into USB specifically. Because even when I did it through my computer, I had to have a mixer to do USB. Um, not even USB, to do those mics into the computer. Excuse me. So... All right, James. I appreciate it. All right, mate. Well, thank you so much. This was fun. I appreciate you uh, having me on the show, and uh, it was a great conversation. Yeah, there'll be a part two. <laughs> I appreciate it, man. Thank you. Thank All you right, so man. much. You take care. All right, take care. Don't uh, don't hang up. All right, all right, family. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Everyone I interview, I've chosen for you guys because of their story, and I hope that you get some value every single time. If you did get value or just just simply enjoyed the episode, 
please share the episode with someone that you know. If you know of a guest, a frontline hero that has an amazing story, something uplifting or a positive message, hit me up in the contact form of www.davidleith.com or DM me at Instagram at davidleith1. Subscribe to the show because I have some really phenomenal guests coming up in the next few weeks that you definitely don't want to miss. All right, one.